The upcoming panel is titled Youth and Family, and we will start off with the video for this panel. That's one of the benefits of having a kid. Eh? When you have a kid, like everywhere you go, people are friendlier. <laughs> like I go to the coffee shop, the uncle that doesn't smile at me, when I bring her along, he'll smile. Apart from people staring at us on the street and pointing at us and saying, wow, look at that family, we get that a lot by the way. There's a lot of upside to raising a family in Singapore. One, it's very, very clean here. Healthcare is easily available if anything goes wrong. And two, it's very, very safe. When we go out, people would see how come he's not with a father and people would tend to link the way he behaved to whether you're a single parent or not. Because I think there's this stigma when if you're not from a complete family, people would think that you are not balanced, like you are rebellious. All along, I've never wanted kids because of the body horror. Lack of children at our age is probably contributory to the lack of community we feel because most people our age are part of mom and dad groups. Yes. By rejecting children, you are questioning their choice to have them. Singapore is safe and as you can see right now they are actually building many facilities that cater for wheelchair-bound people. Even the overhead bridges right now, they have lifts, elevators, so it's convenient. Especially for my mom's situation, why if we lose her outside one day, we don't feel so worried that no one will send her back. Sometimes we are reminded of the question of whether we belong in Singapore. Like people stare at us for too long, maybe we don't fit what they think a family should look like. Most LGBTQ people don't even feel at home in their own homes. I think a conversation about migrating out of Singapore in order to live a life that we would want for ourselves is something that a lot of my straight friends from school, from the workplace, never have to think about. Even the idea that you will never be able to have kids or raise them in Singapore unless you move is not a thought that occurs to them. You tell me how to find a car that can seat eight. Cost of living is a concern. I give the example of a school bus, $300 two ways. When you have five kids, that's 300 times five, $1,500. That starts to really add up. The main thing is just single parent burnt out. The moment I wake up, it's all about my child. Then till he goes to school, after work, it's him again. And then I only have like maybe an hour or two before I go to bed myself. We were married one year before my brother did. So a lot of expectations were on us to hold a wedding, to have children. And I didn't want either of those. So my mom was upset. I'm just stubborn. I basically passed it on and said, hey, my brother will do it. He's the very classic son, very family-oriented. He ticks all the boxes for the rest of the family. So he he's, was... yeah, he's tanking it for us. Growing up, knowing that I was gay, but not feeling that I could talk about it with my parents made me very depressed. It's really hard as a young adult, knowing that your parents have these expectations for you, 
and expectations of what your family should look like and not having the heart to break it to them that it's never going to happen. I think we're in a much better place now. We are now in a situation where my parents have met my partner. We've been on some family trips together, which are things that I think 10 years ago I couldn't have imagined for myself. When we were kids, our parents took care of us. When we were sick, regardless of how tiring or troublesome it may be, I feel that it's only right that we take care of them when they are in need. I mean, this is not something that they chose. I think we are still learning. It still gets frustrating, especially when I have to change my plans. We didn't plan for a child. We weren't very resistant to it as well. It was like a let nature take its course kind of thing. I feel like sometimes like a small bit of regret is that we didn't have enough time with each other as a couple first before she came along. Because once she came along, everything changes. Now when we come home, sometimes it feels like we are parents first before partners. I would say we are quite blessed, lah, quite thankful because yeah. we got help from our parents, both mm. sides. So they take turn to take care of my daughter, of our little one. It's a question of whether we can embrace, you know, the fact that four children of binational families, they love Singapore, they are raised in Singapore, but they also have this other feature about their families, which is that they have a part of their important extended family in a different place. They are also connected to another culture and that is important to their well-being. And so is there a way for us to embrace that as a society? I think as parents, it's important for us to have an end goal. I'm raising a child who will become an adult. What kind of adult would I hope to be able to influence them to, influence them to become? So for example, faith is important. But you unpack faith. Faith has a lot of other things, as things we mentioned like compassion, like caring for other people, like charity one way or another. Just telling people about what we believe in in Singapore and beyond Singapore. One that communicates for my child, I will encourage, he encourages me as well. It works both ways and affirmation goes both ways. I will tell him, you know, I love you and despite whatever, he will tell me he loves me as well. A successful family is a family that wants oh, to yeah. spend time together. Yeah. Not out of obligation, not out of duty, but out of genuine joy and love of yeah. each other. I find that my family is quite successful. For a successful family, it's everybody come home and you feel it's a safe place for us to share our fears, our problems, our insecurities and also our achievements outside law. And then if need be, give each other advices. It's not so much about how much money you have or what kind of status you have. I think it's just that the feeling of peaceful, feeling contented. A successful family is a family that, you know, prioritises the, the right things, the things that make their life more meaningful, finds a way to enjoy each other's company as often as possible. The fact that we are a binational family basically has no bearing on my ideas for what success looks like in our own family. Yeah. So what if successful can never really be boiled down, I think, to a single templatized answer. This idea that a family is a prescription, that it should look a certain way and it should function a certain way, ignores how varied and diverse a human experience is. I think successful families can take the shape of single-parent households. It can look adopted, it can look queer. If we learn to embrace some of that messiness, I think there's a lot of beauty in that. <laughs> For my annual leave at work, it's kind of basic, kind of limited. 
when she starts school, she falls sick quite easily. So I need to either use AL, you know, childcare leave. I hope that the government can also encourage, like you have child sick leave, you have uh, paternity maternity leave. Since Singapore has an aging population and more and more older people like my mum has developed such diseases or illness, maybe they can consider certain leave that allow people who the working class to actually have that time to help take care of their parents. I honestly think big families should have some kind of priority for vehicle, COE, quota, etc. Right? Because even if I want to do public transport, it is so difficult. I don't know how this will ever get changed, but as a parent, as a dad who had to serve reservists, that gets really difficult because you're pulling the father away. I think the duration of the divorce process could be shortened because three years of separation is a long time and to go through the lawsuit for three years, it takes up a lot of money. All of these policies that either pretend that we don't exist or are specifically designed to make it very hostile for us to live here, they don't serve us at all. I think the understanding that we have here in Singapore at least the single that I grew up in, is that we would like to adopt a live and let live approach. You know, let a thousand flowers bloom. You know, regardless of whatever faith you practice, regardless of whatever sexual orientation you have, there is and should be a space for you to live in Singapore free from harassment and with plentiful opportunities for you to pursue in terms of prosperity and joy. Now, I guess the issue here is that there has lately been, I guess, a tension, and that's not new to us. I think we see that happen in other countries and I think we've been pretty good at ensuring that it doesn't rupture into deep social division. Everyone is tired. Yes. Everyone, you have to go and like wake Absolutely. up at 5 to go and fetch your kids to school and then you go report to work and then you have to leave work early to go and pick your kid up. I see parents can get very stressed very fast because like children are always falling sick and that will affect the team morale for anyone regardless of whether they have kids or not, whether they are the ones personally affected or not. I think it just benefits everyone if there is a more relaxed stance on doing the 8.30 to 6.30. It's not even 9 to 6. <laughs> As a church leader, we read our Bible. Every belief system has their own source, right? Ours happens to be the Bible. We tell people what we believe the Bible says about our families. I realise different people have all kinds of combinations, all kinds of configurations. To me, it's very, very simple. I think it's always down to loving the people involved regardless. Where the difficulties come is when we refuse to listen and we refuse to acknowledge. Just because you say something that I don't agree with, I should be able to acknowledge that at least that is your viewpoint, that is your reality. And I think that's a good starting point for a conversation. In this panel, speakers will discuss the growing embrace of singledom, the delaying of marriage, as well as the continual decrease of the total fertility rate with Singapore's changing demographics. This panel will be moderated by Dr. Tan Po Lin, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies. She will open the panel discussion and introduce the speakers. May I now invite members of the panel on stage, please? Good morning, everyone. I'm the moderator for this session. My name is Pauline, and I'm a senior research fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies. 
uh, I think we've heard uh, from the video um, topics that we are all uh, familiar with because we've been talking about these issues throughout the day from beginning of the conference when we started talking about the pre-panel uh, findings. Uh, as well as for those of us who attended uh, Singapore Perspectives last week, we also mentioned uh, these issues about things like work-life conflict, um, attitudes towards childbearing and marriage. And for those of us who attended uh, that uh, online session last week, uh, one of our speakers talked about how when youths are... Uh, um, uh, um, talked about how uh, happiness for youth looks like a U-shaped pattern. You start uh, at a certain peak, and then as you age, you decline happiness, and then thankfully, towards uh, an older age, as you get older, you uh, again recover back to a higher level of happiness. And they explain this decline happiness with youth as, uh, as being due to the fact that youth today have to climb a mountain in order to establish themselves, and that accounts for the age pattern in happiness. I like this analogy uh, about climbing a mountain for youth today, and I would like to extend it, actually, to being more like trying to scale a mountain range, or at least in this case, I think it's at least trying to climb two mountains at the same time, um, career and family. In the traditional kind of breadwinner, homemaker model, Usually, one person may be in charge of one sphere, and the other person may be in charge of the other sphere. But in most families now, we have dual earner we are in the dual earner model, so this is a luxury that few of us can afford. And another new thing for youth today is having to negotiate the changing intergenerational contract. Um, so our relationships with older generations are also changing, and they are also part of our family. Um, so these are the kind of challenges that youth face today. But what I also like about the mountain analogy is that it's not purely negative, right? Once you get up to the top of a mountain, you get to experience new heights, you get to see the sights. And indeed, uh, according to a Pew survey of 17 countries, the top source of meaning of life today for youth, um, as well as uh, in adults at older ages, is always overwhelmingly family with career and occupation second. So today we have with us three esteemed speakers who will talk to us about how youth today view this landscape and what might be some of the strategic insights that we can gain as, as audience here. Um, so we have with us today Mr. Darius Chong, who is the co-founder and CEO of 99.co. Um, and to his the right, uh, Dr. Shannon Ang, who is a sociologist at the Nanyang Technological University. And finally, we have with us Mr. Yuvan Mohan, who is a council member of Families for Life, as well as the National Youth Council. So, um, each of the speakers here will speak uh, for about 10 minutes, and then we will open up for 45 minutes of questions and answers. But let me start off with a more detailed introduction of our first speaker, um, Darius. He is the uh, co-founder and CEO of 99.co, which also happens to be how I managed to find my own resale flat. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Uh, he is also the founder of a mobile security startup, uh, 10Q, uh, which was later acquired by McAfee, I think, in uh, 2010. 
and he's an angel investor for a number of Southeast Asian startups. In 2011, he received the Singapore Youth Award, and in 2015, he was named Entrepreneur of the Year. So we are very lucky to have with us Darius. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Prof. A uh, very generous introduction, and I hope you found your HDB flat quite a few years ago because the prices have gone up. Um, I int my name is Darius. I run a property platform, 99.co, which is particularly more um, popular amongst youth. And we also run a data platform called SRX, which is the leading data platform on property data. Uh, I've interpreted my role, or the invitation for me to be here, is to talk about property prices and how it impacts cost of living and birth rates and so on. Um, but actually, I'm not going to do that. So would you please indulge me? Because actually, we spend quite a bit of the morning and many of the time before talking about cost of living. Uh, I will hand in my homework by running through some data points. Um, they will confirm what we already know. Properties are expensive, prices are high, and certainly it impacts how people think about birth rates. Um, but I actually want to, uh, if you will indulge me, spend some time talking about our personal experience um, about parenthood. Yeah, so we've got to get started. All right, so property prices are high. You know, it's gone up 36% in the last 10 years. Um, the dangerous statistic is that income, in theory, has gone up 42% in the last uh, 10 years, reported by MAS, I think. Um, and this is in a broad segment, which is from the 20% percentile to 80% percentile, so majorities. Um, so it sounds like it should be okay, but the reality is, one, the past doesn't predict the future, right? So maybe in the last 10 years it's okay, but for the new, you know, the, the, the younger folks who are entering workforce today, maybe they don't face the same prospects of um, income growth, and uh, which is why we've got news headlines. Uh, this is reported by us at 99.co. Um, HDB prices hitting crazy prices, 1.4 million, 1.5 million, every quarter, every month there's a new price. Um, my apologies that we're part of the problem in creating this perception, but the reason our writers and editors write about it is because people care about it, right? This is, this is what's popular, this is what gets most clicks. The young people love these stories because they always have that aspiration of, I want to be there. But I think a speaker earlier on this morning also said that, right, which is the reality is not true. The average price is actually only $570,000, right? There's a big gap between the perceived price of what they want to achieve and what actually people do, right? Um, and however, despite that, the challenge is that the, the, even for entry-level income university grads at $3,500 to $4,500, um, that is still quite unaffordable. Right, which is why um, BTO still remains the most popular option with lots of subsidies, and that's a very, very good, good option. Uh, we've got some challenges over the COVID period in terms of delays and so on, but I think that's being fixed now. Um, and if going even earlier for younger people, right? So uh, dating has changed. We used to think of dating as you go out, go on date, come back home, right? And then at some point you get comfortable enough, you get married, and then you have kids, right? Very sequential. Today, I think the young people, fair to say, uh, they, want to, they want to experience more with the person before they decide. Um, maybe they even want to live together. And dating is pretty hard, living under your parents' roof. Um, and this rental is pretty hard because rental prices have gone up 45% uh, in the last 10 years. And, and actually, uh, it's, gone a, it's got a down curve. So in fact, in the last five years, it's gone up something like 50-odd percent. I can't see the numbers from here. Um, and it's averaging 46 thousand uh, dollars in rental price, even room rentals is costing one to 1.5k, right? And this is, we're talking about something that's very, very suburb, very far away from city center. Uh, so it's quite hard to even rent and have your own space for dating, for getting intimate, for living together. 
So what I thought was quite interesting is cover some of this. Um, from in, uh, so I'll take the last six minutes for this, which is that essentially um, what we've seen from 2022 data is that Singapore uh, birth rate has plummeted another 7.5%, right? It's now at 1.07 or something like that. And we need two to replace the population. I mean, nowhere near it. It's only gone down over the years rather than gone up. So we've, despite all of our effort, we've not solved the problem, right? Um, but what is interesting is that this is my wife's company. She runs Asian Parents, which is uh, a parenting app. Uh, to put in context, seven out of 10 pregnancies, uh, pre pregnant mothers actually uses the app. Uh, what is interesting is that from that com community, 80% of parents think that two is the correct number. So what does that say to us? That says that most people think that we should have two kids, but actually they're having one. So what is really going on? So, and she asked another question, a poll, which gave quite interesting insights. The question was not what is concerning you, which is this morning's research we saw. The question is what would actually make you have another kid? Right? What would make you do it rather than what are you worried about? So what would make them do it? Here's the reasons, right? Number one, longer maternity leave. And interestingly, bundled with number five, 14%, longer paternity leave. Re uh, uh, effect number two is to have free education, preschool up to uni. Number three is subsidy for domestic help. Number four is no COE for cars. So you see a no mixed bag of things, both in terms of cost, in terms of time, in terms of energy. So I would generally classify my observation into three categories. One is cost, we talk about cost. Actually, I think the bigger issue is not cost, but time and opportunity cost. And number three is the desire and the spirit to want to do it, right? Um, in terms of cost, I think it's quite clear here, I think from the reasons you can see. Uh, of course, we talk about property costs being high, but that's really you know, something that's quite known and understood. But it, the key concept that I think with our own interaction with other parents is that it is not actually the absolute dollar, uh, absolute necessity that worries them. Truth be told, we live in the top 1% to 5% of the world. No parent is worried about feeding their child, taking them to the doctor, putting a, shelf, a, 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 a shelter over their head. That's not the worry. We know we can do that. The worry... So then the question is, why? Why not? So why can't you have kids? We're already living in the top 1% in the world. How bad can that be? Right? The, the, the problem is a relative scarcity. Every parent wants the best for their child. And the problem lies in, yes, there's some very affordable PA rent preschools, but there are also the $4,000 a month preschool that is out of reach for most people. And as a parent, you, f you will feel a little inadequate or if the minimum stretched, can I afford to do that? If I can't do that, am I not giving my child the best thing? It's that relative scarcity that really scares you, right? There's preschool and then there's enrichment classes. And of course, there's, you know, do I, get, do I buy a car? Do that stretch us further? And do I, um, do, do I add a helper, right? So these are all concerns that are very, very valid, and it's the relative scarcity that is the bigger problem rather than absolute necessity. Uh, me and my wife, we talk about some policy ideas and so on. I'm happy to share them, but you know, uh, we, we think that the, the, the answer is not to, to make things cheaper, but to take away the idea of relative scarcity. Um, and this is even worse if you try to have a second kid. Right? So suddenly you're like, if I have a second kid, that's going to split my scarce resource into two parts. Yes, maybe objectively both of them are still living in you know, top 1-5% of the world, and they're going to work out just fine. But I am splitting it. 
So do I really want to split that? You know, and especially relative to our friends, maybe they are sending to more premium preschool, and we don't, we can't afford that. So it, that fear or that feeling of inadequacy is is a very real one. Um, and this is, you know, we saw in the in the video as well. Even for even worse for single moms, LGBTQ community, um, they don't qualify for baby bonus. They don't qualify for tax incentives. So for them, it's even harder from a cost standpoint. Uh, so the next thing is from a time, energy, opportunity cost standpoint, right? Uh, I was actually talking to five uh, Nanyang JC um, kids. <laughs> sorry, sorry to call you kids. I hope you don't think of it. <laughs> to me, your kids. By the way, I'm, I'm 42 and way past the speaker age uh, <laughs> um, threshold. So sorry for, for that, Mr. Devan. Uh, but anyway, I was talking to the kids, and uh, so they were talking about actually, so. I asked them whether they would have kids. One rated 10, they would have kids. Two rated five, and two rated two. Okay, so one out of five surely have kids. Two are maybe movable. Another two is a bit harder. Yeah, and the, the, if you take the, the two that are movable, the answer is, I hope you don't mind sharing this, uh, is, is really being able to establish their own career, establish it themselves, right? Being get to a certain point to be able to, um, to feel that they're comfortable. And this is relative, to, again, relevant to the first point which is that because it was challenging, it's competitive, I need my career to be a certain point, right? Um, so taking time out to have kids, both the birth process and especially afterwards, is, is a really challenging thing. It's often perceived as taking away, is a career dampener, taking away from your career. Because let's be practical. So most parents actually need to use some of the annual leave to take care of kids, sick, kids for sake all the time. That's all the thing. And on top of that, they actually, um, uh, and, and on top of that, uh, it is, um, they, the, 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 if you look at the primary school enrollment system as, a, as an example, it's a really tough one, right? We, we, we had such a tough time getting into the primary school. If you look at the system, not in so much details, you, you favor alumni, you favor somebody who live near the school, primarily Bukitima and other areas, and you favor somebody who uh, has the time out to do volunteer work, and, which I believe is a very arcane system. What does that mean? That means that you favor somebody who actually have only one single income in the house and the other person can take the time out to do volunteer work, right? That's not very welcoming and it's a big opportunity cost for a dual household income. Uh, and even if you manage to do that, it's a rude shock for, uh, for me. I have a seven-year-old who just ended P1 last year. It was a rude shock to get, go from pre, um, preschool to primary school. Suddenly school ends at 1.30. Right? In preschool, our kids, I, pick, I go to work, I drop the kid off, I go to school, I pick up the kid at 6 o'clock. Suddenly in, pre, in primary one, it's like, hang on a minute, I need to pick up the kid at 1.30. How, how do I exactly do that? Who, who's going to look, look after the kid and give her, a, not just look after, but give her a fulfilling, educational, enriching afternoon? It's difficult. So this is, this, this is from a, um, even once you get into school, right? And, and that's something that we can solve. I mean, when we look at our primary school, there are, there are facilities, there are teachers, there are, we have the labs, we have the computer labs, we have the, we have the swimming pools. Why can't we actually provide a, a, a longer, full-time um, full school? And I know there's a history about AM, PM shift and all that. Um, running a bit over time, so I'm gonna go a little bit faster. So that's really the time and energy it takes to take away from work to, um, to essentially, uh, raise a kid. And next is the desire and urgency. And this last point, I'll kind of breeze through it as well, which is that, and because of that, many people actually feel demoralized or unready to have. And the problem with that is that it is, so the solution is that they procrastinate. 
right? Because having a kid is not, there is no hard stop. We kind of know there's a bio clock, but there's no hard stop. So that leads you to think that, okay, I can always do it later. And this is speaking from personal experience, which is that I have a seven-year-old and um, we were thinking about number two. Uh, and not, we, we, we pro postponed after having the first thinking that maybe we can't handle another kid because we have two companies to run um, and having another kid is just too hard. So we can do it later. And this is, we are entering in the zone of acceptance slash regret. We went for fertility treatment and uh, we had a miscarriage last year. Um, and it's getting hard in the 40s. And this is one of those problems of sliding, you know, slippery slope. You procrastinate, procrastinate, and then suddenly all of a sudden it's like you don't have the option anymore. And we don't realize it. And if you look at the, the, the policies is that we, we still encourage a zero part of progress, right? Get married first and so on and so forth, then you have a kid. Rather than thinking ahead to say that, well, you're gonna, if you want to have a kid someday, you should prepare now. Things like egg freezing has gotten better, but it's not too friendly. You can freeze your eggs, but you can't use them until you get married, right? It's not that friendly to encourage people to think ahead and so that you create the optionality for later. Um, and this is especially true for LGBTQ community as well, right? Uh, so it's really, really tough um, to have kids. We're not very welcoming. We're not making parenthood you know, a sexy, desirable thing, right? Aside from the cost and the opportunity cost, right? We, I think one of the things we need to do is to make it something that you actually want to do, that you're encouraged to do. And if this is one of our biggest challenge as a nation, I would imagine we should look at it as something that's prioritized, all hands on deck, um, kind of challenge. Uh, I'm way over time, so I'm going to stop myself there. So thank you for indulging me. I'm happy to share more in Q&A. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Darius, uh, Thank for you. that, uh, for those sharing your insights um, on not only attacking absolute scarcity that parents face through uh, reforms that you mentioned, like um, increasing access to leave, but also attacking the idea of relative scarcity. Um, that's uh, that's really interesting. Uh, thank you so much for these thoughts. Um, I would like to move on now and see whether we have a lot of overlap with our next speaker, um, Dr. Shannon Ang, who is a sociologist and assistant professor at Nanyang Tech, um, Technological University, where he studies old people and teaches young people. So he is uh, constantly mixing with youth. Uh, Shannon is currently waiting for his BTO to be completed, uh, but he has been already married for seven years. Uh, he is a proud uncle to a mixed-race nephew and a step-niece, um, but he has no kids. Um, but he wants us to know, uh, importantly, that he is currently searching for recommendations for good tacos in Singapore. <laughs> so that's a good opportunity to catch him later at break time to talk about uh, a good topic to talk about. Um, and over to you, Shannon. <laughs> thank you, Pauline, and uh, thank you for being here, everyone. Um, so thank you also to IPS who uh, invited me, despite my insistence that there are other people like Polin who are much better qualified to speak on this topic. So other than being 35 this year, <laughs> my knowledge of uh, Singapore youth mainly comes from teaching them, as well as uh, having to play a little bit with the youth steps data, which uh, the uh, Honey talked about just now. Right, so let me so let's first set up the context here. The, I think the context here is that many surveys in, in Singapore, we know, I mean, there's so many numbers, whether it's from done by NPTD or IPS, they say pretty much the same thing, right? I think surveys say that youth aspire to have children, but they don't really have them. Um, 
And some people will conclude optimistically, not a bad thing, um, that aspirations are strong and that we just need uh, a bit more support here and there, right? We need to give more um, baby bonus, maybe some leave here and there. Um, and, make, and, and yeah, maybe that's a point of view, right? But what I think that we should focus on really is that not really just that aspirations are strong, but that the difference between reality and what is ideal or what, is, what, what young people want is, is there's that gap, right? And, and think about whether that gap uh, is increasing. Um, Mr. Ho Kwon Ping uh, said before at a conference, and he said that population change, like low fertility rate, is, is existential, right? Like climate change. And, and we need really mental paradigm shifts. Uh, we need bigger changes rather than like small uh, incremental ones, right? So I will try to approach this issue uh, in, in kind of a pyramid starting from the top. I have one problem. I will highlight one problem. I will share two observations, and then I will provide three suggestions or provocations as, as you would. So what is the problem? The problem is that we know what young people say, like I just said uh, from the different surveys, but I think we don't understand or we may not pay enough attention to what they mean. For instance, um, they may say children are costly. I think Darius has talked about it uh, just now. And, it, and it, they really don't mean that the child, you, to keep it alive is very difficult, right? Keep the child alive is, <laughs> is, uh, is difficult, right? Um, they mean that there are heavy expectations to, to raising a child that require significant costs and significant, uh, not just like money costs, but opportunity costs, right? And, and these costs constantly inflate. As my colleague, Associate Professor Tio Yu Yen, who's here somewhere, uh, she will conclude from her study of parents, this is not even because they have some like crazy idea of their child being a, the top lawyer or banker in their field. Uh, it's really about having them be average. Even having them being average is difficult and it's costly, right? Or, Young people might say that, oh, parenting is too great a responsibility. I cannot, I'm not prepared for it, right? And they cannot ensure good upbringing. What they mean here may really be that they may not like the way that they were raised in an environment. They don't want to inflict that on the on on on, on child, right? Um, I've heard more than once, to my surprise, these two words being used, generational trauma. I've heard this used quite a number of times by young people. And, I, and it's not something I would use, but it's quite surprising to me. Right? Or, they mean, or they may mean that um, kids are not something that you have for the sake of having. Right? You, you need to invest big amounts of uh, effort and time into them. Right? They may also mean that they themselves are not okay. Right? They have many, they're struggling with mental health issues, the kind of uh, uncertainty of the world. So they may not be okay enough to, to think about having a, a child. Right? So that's, my, that's the one problem. So I will make two broad observations about family uh, and youth. First, being young in a family today is different from being young in the past. I mean, duh. Um, but a few examples, right? So doing better than your parents, this idea of doing better than your parents is probably going to be much less likely now than it was like 30 years ago in the past, right? Second, I think being, being young in an aging or aged society is different from being young in a young society. So when NYC, I guess, started in 1989, that was a very different picture from now, right? So that means that young people have to deal with a lot more uh, things like long-term care, things like decisions for end of life, right? I mean, we talk about older people, so I study older people. So um, uh, we talk about LP, uh, LPAs and things like that. Who are the people who are gonna sign the LPAs? Like the, the, the young people, right? And young people, if older people don't have as many children as before, then they're gonna be on many people's LPAs. Um, okay, so that's the, that's, that's how being young in a family today is different from being young in the past. Second, families are intricately linked to inequality. Families with more resources, they can pass on their privileges and they can navigate challenges easier than those 
without. So for example, families who rely on things like, for example, just now we talked about gig, gig work, right? Those seldom come with things like childcare leave. And this just means that over time, this inequality between families, are like, if you don't do anything, it's likely to increase over time. Right? So of course, there are studies that, that show this. The SGLEAD study by Professor Jin Yong shows that even among preschoolers, even in preschool, these things already show up, that parents uh, who are more well-to-do, more educated, their children have better skills. Right? Uh, my own study on the U-STEPS uh, data with uh, Nathan, one of the, uh, my undergrad stu uh, students, uh, we find that youths, did better, sorry, youths that have better educated parents or live in uh, bigger houses or, or more expensive houses uh, don't just have more links with people with, who have uh, in high occupations, high-income occupations. Right? They also know less people in low-income occupations. So there is a bifurcation of networks here. So, What's the point here? I think that institutionalized re reliance on the family it just means that some people get left out and, and better, greater burdens, and especially when we're dealing with all these issues of care uh, and work, right? And these advantages as well as disadvantages, they accumulate over time. Um, so I have three suggestions. So uh, one problem, two, uh, two observations, and I've finished with three suggestions, okay? So first, my first suggestion is that we must expand the idea of a family so that the risk and resources can be better pulled together. Right? Uh, some other panelists, I think, in the online panel have already made this point. Um, and watching the video just now on, on, the, on the screen, and seeing what people say as, define as a successful family, I look at it and I'm just like, none of that requires you to have blood ties to have any of those things in, in being successful. Right? And we can expand the idea of a family both in terms of our assumptions of uh, A, who lives together, and B, who constitutes a family, whether single parents, companion, uh, companions, right? So older people, they tend not to get married, but they may be companions, uh, uh, same-sex couples, and, and friends, even, right? Uh, one good, idea, one good uh, example here is the Red Crown's uh, senior living case, right? Where, where they came together and put together their resources, but I think our uh, policies and laws are just not caught up enough to, to, to uh, allow for that. And so that's one idea of how um, families can pull resources together. Importantly, I think relying on the idea of a small nuclear family keeps people kind of trapped and curved inwards on their families, right? And this is something that has been shown in research all over, all over the world, whether it's old people or young people. Um, if you are you're more, very concentrated on the family, you, you tend to have less friends, you're less connected to outside people, and then it limits uh, collective action and, and in, in the community, right? In other, in other countries, uh, friendships are becoming more important for older adults, right? As older people have less, less children, they, they rely on their friends to, to give them, uh, fulfill their needs, right? In, 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 I read about this case in Korea where this older person, one older person adopted her best friend because, uh, um, so that they could sign medical consent forms for each other, right? So this idea of expanding the family is really to, to help us to pull uh, resources together so that we are not just kind of focused on our, ourselves and our, our family. Second, so this is the second suggestion, is that we must reduce the reward of precocity so that not all the stakes are concentrated early on in the life course, right? So what do I mean by precocity is rewarded? I'm going to, I guess, the rest it would be better at this, but BTO is one good example, right? Who are the people who benefit most from BTO? It are people who decide damn early on, sorry, <laughs> very early on that they want to get married, right? Yep. And then they apply for a flat and then they stick with it, right? If you, if you, if you deviate from the course anywhere on the course, you, 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 you get a penalty or maybe you won't get as much. So, like me, we, me and my wife, we, we, I, we decided that we would not use the BTO to propose, so we wait for seven years. <laughs> okay, so 
lowering the stakes is important, not just for the child, but also the parent, right? If, every, if the trajectory of our success in society uh, is concentrated early on, whether it's, you are, whether it's you are a child or when you are starting out in your career, then the critical periods for these things coincide, right? You have the child in its early stages, you want to spend more time, but at the same time, your career, you want to spend more time there so that you can uh, rise up the, the, the ladder, right? And so, this is forcing young parents to make an impossible choice. Um, people turn to technology, for example, like egg freezing, so they can get around this, but it's, very, it's not for everyone, right? And so I think, for instance, we can think about like management associate type of programs or, or, or scholarships, right? Which tend to have this requirement that people are within X years of graduation and they give you this fast track, right? But the stakes are so high at the early part, so who, who's going to choose uh, um, having a child over building your career? I think there is an unhealthy uh, valorization of being young or reaching some, reaching some milestones uh, very early, like Forbes 30, under 30, right? I think this kind of thing, it, it does youth no favors, really. It just makes everything uh, compressed at the beginning. And, and, and with older people living longer, really, there is no need to compress everything uh, early. Okay, finally, I have two seconds left. Third, <laughs> we must uh, be much more explicit about how we, as a country, as a society, as Singapore, uh, want to resolve this work-family tension. I think at the moment, there's not, it's not super uh, clear how we will do this, right? So for example, uh, DPM Lawrence Wong tells us that like, Singapore economic growth is non-negotiable, right? But at the same time, MSF or MPTD tells us that like, Singapore is pro-family and it's made for families, right? Can these two positions be true at the same time? I think that's something that we need to help uh, ourselves figure out how is it that we want to, to do it, right? I mean, you can go on LinkedIn and, and you see a lot of people in suits and then they talk about like, oh, work-life balance is possible, we'll do this and do that. But I think um, family and work cannot both be first for young parents especially, right? Both domains, I call this endless vortexes. They will take as much time as from you as you would give them. So when everybody in our family, even our family, our country and our community seems to... Um, privilege economic success the most, then we cannot blame young people for choosing that all the time and, and investing all their energy into, into, to the, uh, into economic uh, rewards, right? So, um, I think just now we also talked about uh, dual-income households, right? Honey talked about how uh, HDBs are kind of affordable, but maybe because we have this assumption that people are now uh, dual household, household uh, incomes, right? Um, and it's not clear to me what we expect young people to do, huh? as, as, as Pauline was talking about there. Last time, one, one lot of the home wanted to go out to work, it works, but now both have to work. So what are we going to do? Do we expect young people to hire a foreign domestic worker and go out to work? This is often, and I talk to a bunch of young people, and this is often quite morally difficult for them. Right? They're, they're like, I'm hiring this person who may have children on their own to look after my children. Right? How, sustainable, how sustainable is it going to be? Is, are we going to normalize it? Second, do we expect grandparents to look after their grandchildren, right? And so are we expecting them to like, give free care labor so that our economy can grow? And now that we are asking them to work longer, I, I don't know how the math is going to work, okay? Um, so all, finally, are we going like, to just fold our arms and we are going to insist that young people are be, be resilient and rely on the market to, to sort it out, right? I think we cannot expect young people to do everything and to deal with these uh, contradictions on their own and, 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 and basically try and see how to balance out these impossible uh, demands. So we need to be a lot more explicit. So I'm going to end here. <laughs> those, those are my three suggestions. Expand the idea of the family, reduce the reward of precocity, and be explicit about how we want to uh, resolve this work-family uh, tension.
right? Um, I think the temptation here really is to list out all the small things that we have already going on, but I think these small things, I think it really requires a bigger shift than that. Um, so we cannot rele relegate anything to the, everything to the nuclear family. We really need better collective solutions. Um, and, and in recent times, I think we, in, in media, we talked about how we want to, like, our reserves, right? And, and, and uh, PM says, Zilang uh, Zipong, right? 50% uh, for now and 50% put into for future generations. And I think the, the, the interesting question here that, that uh, was post, post by Hurraming of the work salary man that I talked about is that he, he, he pointed out, like, who, who are this next generation? If we are going to, like, if our population is going to have less and less children, who is the next generation that we're going to pass on all this wealth uh, to? And I think there's still time with, with the echo of the baby boom, as uh, Poland would say, uh, but we, we need to think about, rethink some of these things that we have deep-seated ideas about. Okay, I'm done. Thank you, Shannon, uh, for, for your thoughts. Um, I think that just as um, Darius equipped us with this phrase of and relative scarcity for us to kind of uh, collect our thoughts, you also, also provided with us something memorable, the idea of an endless vortex. Um, and I think that uh, while there were some overlaps between what you guys mentioned, uh, both about work-life conflict, for, uh, for example, and about uh, cost of childbearing, I think that you also brought in your own twist uh, in this... Uh, in your, in your thoughts about how the family also plays a role in terms of uh, generating and perpetuating inequality. So these are all um, uh, really um, fruitful thoughts that I think uh, we would um, benefit from having a, yet another source of uh, another, another speaker come in and um, add to this pool. So I have the pleasure of introducing uh, Mr. Yuvan uh, uh, Mohan, who is um, the country head for public policy and government relations at a tech firm, but he's also a council member of the, with the National Youth Council and Families for Life, and he's an advisory committee member with Youth, youth Corps Singapore and chairperson of uh, Sinda Youth Club. He received the President's Volunteerism and Anthropology uh, sorry, <laughs> Philanthropy Award in the Leaders of Good Youth category in 2023 and the Singapore Silent Heroes Award for Most Inspiring Youth in 2018. So um, Mr. Mohan is therefore uh, not just a senior youth, but also uh, someone who works with and advocates <laughs> for interests uh, in the areas of career and family and uh, personal development. So <laughs> let's hear from Mr. Mohan. <laughs> I still have some time to graduate from my youth bracket, but yeah, thank you for calling me a senior youth. My fiancé does that as well. Uh, so I think any conversations on family and youth requires not just policy intervention, but also a change in social mindset. And so my solutions will be talking about that. So there are three solutions I would be advocating for. The first, I think, is we need to reframe relationships for youths. And this, I'll bring up an anecdotal example. You know, when I was growing up, my mom used to tell me, you even don't have a girlfriend because you can't concentrate. Unbeknownst to her, I can't concentrate, period. It's not because I shouldn't have a girlfriend, right? But you know, when I was 27, and at the time I was working in city as a management associate, I just bought a house with my mom, and we were just walking along the streets. And then she told me, you know, Yuvan, I'm disappointed. And I'm like, why are you disappointed? You're 27 and you're not married. And I was like, 
you know the YouTube Brutus moment where you're like, for the whole time throughout my teenagehood, you've told me not to have a girlfriend, and then suddenly you expect me to have a wife. And we were just so happened to be walking under a tree, and I said, you expect my wife to fall from a tree, is it? It's not <laughs> going to happen like that. So one is that there is a whole sequential perspective when it comes to uh, looking at relationships. What I'm proposing for is to have a portfolio approach where we view relationships, where we view friendships as part of life, not just a life stage, but throughout your life. And the second one is where we put too much of emphasis on all relationships going according to plan. So, okay, listening to my mom, and I said, okay, let's try this dating thing at 27. When I started to go home after every day, my mom was like, so how? Is she the one? And then as months grow, went on, she was like, so how? Then after that, how? And then after that, no questions asked. <laughs> and so I think as parents, we need to really dial it down a bit and to say that not every relationship that a young person goes through needs to end up in marriage. And I think that is why when we look at maybe national trends, we are starting to see more young people really opting out of this whole friendship phenomenon. So I think this was a national youth survey. I think they asked, you know, how many youths and young adults have close friends. And it's quite concerning to me if we were to look at the last row in terms of youths who don't have a close friend, steadily over time, it's increasing. That could be because we are emphasizing a sequential approach in life where we are emphasizing education first, work first, rather than making friends. And if we were to look at the 2022 data, and especially for those who are what, part of what I call the older youth bracket, 30 to 34, those people who don't even have a close friend, that's almost 10%. Now, if you extrapolate this and then we look at the phenomenon of you know, elderly aging in isolation, we are starting to see the starting points of all of this. So what's my proposed solution? It's not a policy per se, but really using mentoring as the heart of all of this. And you know, we've got mentoring as GMOS Elvin is here. You know, mentoring as encouraging young people to have conversations, not just about career, but life and career as well. And I've benefited from this. So I do have mentors who are like five years older than me who are giving me relationship advice. And in turn, I'm doing that for other people as well. So I'm part of an interracial relationship. And so I'm helping one of my individuals who's helping me for, her for my wedding. As an agreement, I'm supposed to help her younger brother navigate how do you go past the Chinese New Year, your first Chinese New Year as a, as a, as a couple? So, you know, your Chinese phrases like Long Ma Ching Cheng, Ting Tung Yong Tu, Shen Ti Cheng Kang, Wu Fu Lin Men, right? So, the importance of doing that, the importance of nailing down your low head, like a Tian Tian Mimi, Tian Tian Mimi, I don't know, Yu uh, or uh, something, Yu. I forgot. Nian Nian Yuri, yes, Nian Nian Yuri, right? So how do you go about doing that so that you nail your first Chinese New Year? Because that is a very important thing. But these are things that you won't learn online. And you don't need a marriage counselor to tell you this. But rather, we need to start exposing and creating a community of care when it comes to relationships and friendships. So that's my first uh, suggestion. My second suggestion is to actually regionalize or strengthen the regional nodes of Singapore. Now, this is more of a policy and an infrastructure play. Because what I've observed is that the, uh, the average households have decreased, but the responsibility still remains the same. So I'm a Spock, not a Star Trek character, but a single parent-only child, which means that the responsibilities are borne on to two people. I have a running joke with my fiancé who happens to have a mom and a dad and uh, an elder sibling. I just tell her this, I need to fulfill the same duties with half the headcount. 
that means the entire pressure is put on me, which is why on Sundays I can't go out and earn uh, uh, or date because I need to do housework, right? Other people, your families, you can outsource to your elder sister and she can help you out, but I don't have that facility. And if we were to look at national statistics, it also agrees to that point. Oh, sorry. If you look at the average resident household, it has dramatically fallen over the decades. And if we were to look at based on um, household type, so six, four, five are just the number of households. You can see that we started off in 1980s with six being the dominant one, and then ending out at the bottom place, and then two rising up. And just as a caveat, two also indica indicates uh, maybe potentially domestic workers as well. So yes, uh, families have, have shrunk, the responsibilities per individual has increased. And what has happened is, we have, um, when we look at responsibilities, I will put it across uh, five segments in terms of how we want to assess whether a regional node is strong. Where a person works, where a person plays, where a person lives, where a person learns, and where a person cares. I think where we have done very well is where a person plays. So how many of you, I think the students, come from the east side of Singapore? East side, west side, hands up. Yeah, so a long, long time ago, Budok had no shopping malls, right? I was part of the whole generation where Budok had no shopping malls. Now we've got Budok Point, Budok Plus, I think, or Budok Mall. In Tampines, we only had Century Square and, and uh, Tampines Mall. Now we've got Tampines One and you've got our Tampines Hub. What has happened is the way we play has now become a lot more accessible. You do not need to go to town in order to get sports facilities. That's a lot more easier. But, and when we look at also work, work has also improved. You no longer need to work in Asia Square. So I've worked in Asia Square, Changi Business Park, Ubi Tech Park, and Topayo. I've worked in different areas, and we have done reasonably well. But where I think we can really work on is where we learn. You know, I've never heard a person change their housing address because of a job. But I've always heard people changing their homes because of schools. That goes to show that we really need to strengthen the regional nodes, try to create what I call regionally excellent schools, or really move away from concentration of a particular schools within a particular district, right? So I, I think we really need to do that. So what will happen is a person that spends time is able to do that in a very efficient manner. And I know you may be wondering, you know, even Singapore is very big, what will this achieve? Singapore is not very big, but what will this achieve? Singapore is so small, but it's intense. If you think about our day-to-day -day lives, we are connected to technology. Everything has become self-serve. So what has happened is every minute is occupied. So if I'm able to save 10 minutes of your time, if you think about it, it's actually an hour worth of breathing space. And I think that's when we can encourage more people to live together uh, and start families early. The third point I'll be talking about is the, uh, we need to elevate caregiving for elderly to that of uh, rearing children or having kids. Let me give you an example. So recently, my, unfortunately, my grandmother was uh, hospitalized. She has four kids, nine grandkids. My elder uncle takes charge of doing the day-to-day -day rostering because he can only have two people in the hospital. My younger uncle prepares the home so that my, my, grandfather, my grandmother can go back, she's comfortable. My mom does uh, errands and chores so to buy things for her. My elder aunt, who works in the hospital sector, does the interpretation of you know, what the doctors are saying. I don't have four people, I don't have three people, I only have me. Which means that when I look at the kind of leaves that I've got, the kinds of responsibilities that I have, it's only going to be down on me. And I do not know if I'm going to have four grandkids or nine grandkids, right? How can that then translate to the next generation? So what I'm proposing is that for elder care, we need to benchmark it with 
child-rearing, which means mandatory leave, non-means-tested kind of incentives. We will need to look at institutionalized care. And I think society needs to play a very integral role in this, where we cannot demonize or cannot view negatively institutional care for elderly in our housing precincts. So it's only by doing that as a collective that I think we can then say as a family, we can start outsourcing, I won't use the word outsourcing, but start streamlining care to other kinds of facilities so we can go about our daily lives. So those are my suggestions, and I'm really happy to hear for further questions when uh, we have the dialogue and Q&A. Thank you. So Yuvan, I think for, for, from your speech that the keywords I will take away is really community support. Uh, so the ideas that you've brought up, I think uh, both of you, uh, both you, sorry, and Shannon have talked about uh, how these, the ways that we think about these issues need to come not just at, you know, when people have reached the ages of 15 to 34, but really also need to come at younger ages. And moreover, at the other end of the spectrum, we also need to think about caregiving. Um, so this really highlights the need for more of a top-to-bottom kind of intergenerational approach uh, towards the idea of uh, enabling youth to have successful families. So we've come to the Q&A session, um, and uh, let me first recap a little bit about some of the areas that we've been covering uh, with our three excellent speakers. Really, really enjoyed listening to all three of you. Uh, some we've heard about, for example, you starting out, their living arrangements, their access to buying or renting homes. Um, and I think that you brought up a really nice framework of looking at relationships at work as a uh, starting it, mentoring at uh, earlier ages, and building a community, community, community of support. There's also the idea of childbearing and the ideal child. So uh, we heard from all three speakers about how really it's not uh, just about how expensive it is, it's also about the pressure to invest in all these expensive uh, preschools and enrichment activities. And I think that when we heard about uh, childbearing, we also heard about the place of social inequality, the need to uh, reduce the impact of early advantage. And I really liked your point, Darius, about how over-reliance on family can lead to demoralization, right? Uh, both for current parents and future parents. Finally, we, um, I think, uh, sorry, third point, we also talked about work-life balance. I think we heard about these long work hours, how um, they're not harmonized with school hours. And um, Shannon, you brought out the term endless vortex and uh, how we need to as tackle these issues more explicitly. Um, and Darius, you talked about how we have the, you know, to maybe be more flexible in terms of the order of life events. Actually, I would say, uh, go back and say, actually, all three of us, all three of you touched on this uh, theme, uh, as well as uh, how it might actually have implications for how we legislate uh, access to fertility health, right? Um, and uh, that was also a really nice point that you made, Yuvan, about regionalization of Singapore in regard to work-life balance. Um, and beyond just marriage and childbearing, you talked a little bit about relationships with our parents, um, and how these days youths are more worried about uh, caregiving duties and uh, the importance of supporting, uh, again, increased community support for caregivers of all ages, at, uh, of, of dependents of all ages. And there was also this idea of how families today are defined. Uh, is there a need for a re redefinition um, among non-traditional family types and uh, include 
it broadening definition to include those who live together. So we've come to the Q&A session finally. I can stop talking. It's your turn to talk. Um, again, as a reminder, when you do come up to the microphones, please introduce yourself. Let us know your name uh, and your affiliation. Um, and again, there's a QR code at the back of your card to uh, post a question. So I'm going to spark off this Q&A session with a question about, um, um, with about uh, how the very, the very last point I made, which is about the definition of the family and whether we can be more inclusive and equitable. So uh, the question is, how can we be more inclusive and equitable with our policies where non-traditional families are concerned? How can we rethink the definition of family in Singapore? And I hope it's okay with everyone if I break protocol a little bit and use, take advantage of my position here as moderator to um, actually push that question a little bit, to ask, um, when we talk about these ideas of redefining families, for example, redefining what is success, redefining what is the ideal child, how do we go about distinguishing between healthy and unhealthy notions? Um, for example, institution of marriage versus these expensive weddings that you run, you're going through right now, um, the optimal child environment versus unhelpful stigma for children, right? Um, so we want to help children from non-traditional families, but how do we, but we also want to maximize uh, their, their well-being, um, which tends to be in a two-parent family. And how do we distinguish between rewarding effort, for example, versus inequality? So, uh, so I hope this question uh, is something that uh, can bring us straight to the key, the heart of the issues. Uh, so, uh, anybody can start by, can, can go ahead and respond. Sure, I'll start. I, I interpreted the question as how can we be, if I understand correctly, how can we be inclusive to non-traditional definition of family success? I interpret it as, as only one segment of it, as an example to illustrate what I interpret the question is, is how can we make, um, you know, consider LGBTQ couples or single motherhood or, um, you know, just untraditional family, could they be interpreted as successful and give them the support for them to thrive? To thrive? Uh, so that's my interpretation of the question. Now, in that context, I think my answer is, I think it's, my two cents is that it's impossible to get a society to agree that this is the definition of success. If you look at the video, everybody had a different definition. And you, I think we'll subscribe to some of them. Some of them are pretty universal. If your family is happy and you want to come home to each other voluntarily, that's a pretty universal definition of success for a family, right? And I think it's a bit hard to come to uh, a universal understanding. I think for me, because I've, I'm an entrepreneur, I've been an entrepreneur for all my life, uh, the way we think about the world is priorities, right? Is that really a priority of question to have a universal definition? Or is our priority making our society welcoming to all people to thrive, which means that we need to accept that we won't have the same definition. And that's okay. Right? And if our priority is having kids is important, and that, that may come at a cost for us to not accept that you know, all definitions, people have to agree to the same definition, and that's the cost we pay. So to me, I think about the world in terms of priorities. Um, so that's my two cents. The take, Ivan? Yep. So I think for me, 
we, we need to start young. We need to also understand that not everyone is born into families where they've got good family role models. I recall doing a, a poll when I did an initiative on, on exploring relationships. When I asked who were your family role models, none of them said their parents. All of them said it was either a K-pop drama or royalty. And I think that sets people up for failure because that's just one part of family dynamics. So I think we need to start young in terms of allowing young people to really explore what it means to be in a relationship. And when we talk about that, not be so obsessed on who you're dating or who you're going out with, but do you feel safe? Do you feel respected? Have you had meaningful conversations? And I think that is something that we will need to explore because if we don't have these kinds of conversations within the family nucleus, when this goes outside, it's very hard to understand or keep a sense of where these kinds of family conversations are going to have. Mm. So for young people, I encourage you to please date. For the parents here, please allow your teenagers to date. Because, I mean, for me, I've learned a lot about myself throughout the dating experience. If you wanted me to position in a very pragmatic way, I can say that dating helped me to do my job interviews better because being able to speak to a stranger and being able to position yourself is an important skill and dating helps you in doing that. Shannon, <laughs> did you want to weigh in? Um, I think, I mean, there was this one part of your question. I, you had many questions. Uh, I just latched onto one part, which is about how to be more inclusive, right? As Darius was saying, how to broaden uh, the idea of a family. I think, for me, that's a... It's use our imagination, right? That's how, that's how we do it. Um, but I think one way we can start is really to make it easier to help other people, right? In, in ways that may, may seem like it's only for family members to do, but you can do as well. So one of the things that we find, I, I study uh, social support among older people, and one of the things that we find is that uh, older people get a lot of help in terms of other things, like clean up their house, stuff like that. But they only get money from their children, right? And I always wonder, why, why is it that we have this strict delineation that money has this, like you cannot take money from other people, but you can take money from your children, right? And that's one of the social norms that have been long-standing for a long time, that there really has no inherent like, logic to it, right? Um, and I think those are some of the things that we can expand uh, to, to explore more of. Um, I think a lot of our policies, for instance, uh, look at uh, family defined in a very certain way, right? So the foreigners, domestic worker must be living with uh, the older person in order for you to qualify for some levy or something like that. So I think things like that we can think about expanding and making it easier for, for non-family members to help each other. I think that's, that's the main point I'm trying to say. Thank you. Uh, let's take a question from the floor. I think we, ha uh, we have um, somebody right there. Yes. Hello, good afternoon. My name is Cheryl and I'm from Tamasic Polytechnic. So my question is open to anyone on the floor. Um, my question is, how can we assure that parents can spend time and raise their children with human interaction rather than through online devices before their schooling years? As has been shown via millennial parenting, that young kids exposed to devices at a young age stunts their development and social skills. Thank you. It's open to anyone. I, I speak from experience. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough one. <laughs> it's hard to pull my seven-year-old uh, away from her iPad, um, <laughs> uh, which is why we don't give her any device. We give her one hour um, of TV time or slash device time uh, a day, uh, which is, I think, WHO's recommendation is below two hours a day. Uh, how can we do it? You know, honestly, I have no answer. Um, 
other than just educating more parents to be aware of the damage it does. Um, I think because I work in tech, we research and understand these things. My, I'm, you know, we both, me and my wife are both in tech, she in particular in parenting tech, so we really care about this stuff. So we are aware and we set very hard boundaries with strong incentive and disincentive systems around it um, in terms of what our kid is allowed or not allowed to do. But uh, I, I suppose educating parents is a part of it. Um, I'm sure you will have a lot more to say in terms of what can we create to encourage interactions, neighborhoods, and so on and so forth, right? Yeah. Over to you. Nice segue. <laughs> so I think in terms of, look, these are all very personal questions. Yeah. And I think I'm not going to give you a solution, but I'm going to try to provide that we need to create a community of care through mentorship, through coaches to help you explore those kinds of conversations. Because you, you cannot personalize policy to such an extent where it helps in each family and each household. So what I can, what, and we're already doing it from an MSF perspective in terms of a journey with you program where young couples are actually attached to their solemnizers and you can have follow-up conversations with them on how you have these kinds of conversations with your kids, right? But at the same time, as a society, I think we also need to avail ourselves to share what our learned experiences are. It does not need to be perfect, but I think we need to be more open in terms of how we have had or how we are having our intergenerational conversations. So I think what I would suggest is perhaps ask your friends, are they going through the same things of, you know, are your parents denying you or a perceived denial of your devices? Um, and when you eventually become parents, what are the kinds of values you want to espouse and how do you want to think about then devices with your kids? So I don't think there's going to be any policy prescription, but I think why we need to really focus on is this community of care or having people that we can turn to to unpack such conversations, such intergenerational conversations. Okay, um, I, I think there are two things here that I want to, I guess I will respond to. Uh, the first, I think, is that different parents have different resources, right? And for some parents, that may mean keeping their child occupied with with some of these devices, and, and that's often the case, right? You can't spend like all your time and energy on, on, on one child. Only, only very few parents can, can um, afford that kind of uh, resource. And, and so if we want to fix the problem, I guess we have to think about how do we get uh, different kinds of parents, more resources to, to deal with it. I think the second thing, and, and the more important thing that I want to say, I guess is that um, I think there's a lot of moral panic around this like issue of like, uh, devices and people becoming antisocial because uh, they look at their uh, phones all day. Um, and there is some truth there. I think the, the science does show that in some kind of measure, maybe uh, attention and things like that, it does matter. And whether it's a big enough measure to, to, to measure or not is another thing altogether. But I think we have to be quite clear-headed about this, right? I'm going to read to you a quote uh, by Charles Cooley in 1909, okay? It says, what a strange practice it is that a man should sit down to his breakfast table and instead of conversing with his wife and children, hold before his face a sort of screen, which is inscribe a worldwide gossip. Now, what is he talking about? He says, well, he's it's a screen, right? And, and, and he's basically complaining that there's a death of conversation. What he's holding for his screen and he's referring to here is the newspaper. And so every generation, I think, will have this kind of like moral panic around some issues like that. And I think the way to approach it is to, to, to be clear-headed about it, right? Yeah, at what ages does it matter? Um, is, is it really like always bad? And do we like judge people for, for using uh, uh, their, their devices in front of their children? I think um, having a, being able to study it better and being, 
have, have a good idea of what exactly this means, I think uh, it's important, right? I mean, for young people, the social is, is online, right? I mean, you're talking to people, I don't want to talk to you lah, because you, you are not interesting, right? I mean, I'd rather uh, scroll online and, 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 and talk to people there. And I think it is, yeah, we can't just say like, oh, screens are bad, take them away, right? I think it's a, it's a bigger issue here around, around how relationships between parents and children and how can we support that, 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 that makes sense. I, at this point, feel an obligation as a female moderator, moderating an all-male <laughs> panel. Uh, to interject at this point, the question but of... Can I add one point first? Because <laughs> I didn't remember there was... Well, I, I, by the way, I'm in the screens are bad, let's take them away. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think I, I did have one point that I think would work. The only time I've seen my kid to voluntarily and happily walk away from a screen is when they have play dates or playing with other kids. Mm. Okay? I think most parents here probably have experienced that. Uh, so it goes back to my point, full day primary school. That's going to remove screen time. <laughs> no, seriously. Because this is when the kids have a screen because we are not at home. Nobody's plays with the kid. They're bored, so they go to the screen. And there's nothing. As parents, I don't know what else to do. Right? Like, how else do I entertain a kid? So take away screen time by having full day primary school. And we don't have to have very structured, hard curriculum, teach them, educate, measure, test. No, just let them play. Right? Just make, yes, we need to invest some to make sure that there are people around, make sure they're safe and all that. But let them be creative, let them play with each other. But coming to this question of um, who is going to take care of them, right? Is, uh, I think if we look at the study, I think that uh, was cited by Shannon about, uh, by SG Leeds, right? With, by uh, researchers at NUS. Um, I think that they show that there's actually a big difference in terms of how much time mothers and fathers spend with children. So there's actually a very, you know, to answer your question, mostly the person who'd be taking care of the child is the primary caregiver who usually tends to be the mother. So I think this, this idea of uh, who, who is going to be regulating the children's behavior, who is going to be taking care of the child, all that speaks to a gender a perspective of the fact that actually a lot of this is done by women. Why do I bring this up? I bring this up because at the beginning of our conference today, we saw that men, young men and young women, actually there is a divergence in their perspective perceptions about future, um, about their aspirations for marriage and, and childbearing. And this ties to, I think, a nicely an online question from Anne, UWC, uh, Southeast Asia, talking about uh, what do you think about the gender role, such as male has to be the main provider, female to stop working to take care of the family in youth's consideration towards uh, forming families. So um, does, uh, do, Darius, do you want to take this question? Um, sure, I'm not a researcher, I've, I'm sure, not a policymaker, so I don't really know what I'm talking about, but from my own personal experience as well as just friends around us, I, I, I think this generation of Singaporeans, like I think maybe like 45 and below, pretty much both parents have to do everything. Mm. I don't think there's a choice here. It's, it's the lack of choice is not even a question of what you choose to do, who choose to be, like norms and so on, right? Like we need two incomes. We know most people don't survive without two incomes. If you need two incomes, that means we need to share work. Uh, is it a shift from traditional, say, mothers being the, the center? Yes. And that means that means there's some legacy that the mother will still be making most decisions, taking, taking more of the load, which is why from the Asian parent poll you saw, right? Uh, maternity leave is number one request. Number f paternity leave is number five request. There's still a gap. But the new good news is both are there. Yep. Paternity leave is the top five re top five. Um, because th that reflects that parents are actually seeing that it's a dual, dual parent job 
for raising a kid nowadays. Yep. Um, so yeah, I think, do we need to do it? I'm not sure. Is there much do we need to do to push? Because I actually think that you would naturally trend towards that anyway. Now, I started asking you, Darius, first, because you are the, father, the, the dad in this room. But then I'll move on to, the, to Shannon, who is married but not a dad. So, so Shannon, who does most of the housework, for example? And what's your perspective on this question? For now, we are still living with our in-laws, so we don't do any of the housework. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, um, I think, I mean, I think this idea of women having to do more, I think it has been a, I mean, Ali Hoschild in, in her book, The Second Shift, talks about this, right? We, we now expect um, uh, women to work, right? There's, there's more women are going out to the workplace. I mean, Singapore, we have a bunch of policies that, that encourage this as well. But then that doesn't mean that their domestic duties stop, right? And, and when they come back home, they still have to do more, more work, right? And I think this is a bigger kind of issue that's going on here really is that people today are getting made to do more and more, right? And it's part of this bigger trend that you just add on, keep adding on, right? If you, you need to work, you need to look after the, the children, you need to look after your older parents, and then you, you need to be on your, 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 your phone all the time, otherwise you, you may be, may be uh, mistaken as quiet quitting if you don't reply the email at like 7, 8 p.m. at night. I mean, I think, um, and also I, I read this article yesterday by The Atlantic about how there is a divergence between uh, uh, women and, and, and men, young women and men in terms of politics and things like that. So I think, um, my point here really is that what do we want, uh, what kind of norms do you want to set for, for, mm -hmm. for, for men and women to do, right? I mean, clearly, younger people nowadays, um, they don't buy this whole uh, men go out to work and women stay at home anymore, right? I tell my wife all the time I want to be a house husband. She doesn't let me. <laughs> so I think, I think we, we, we need to question some of these kind of received uh, wisdom and to, and to see what is the challenge ahead. The challenge ahead is that we have an aging population, we, we, we have a low, lower fertility rate, and, and how do men and women within the house, or even for LGBTQ couples, right, how, how do we negotiate our family duties? And we need a renegotiation of that. Instead of like, we don't talk about it, so nobody fights about it, so like, we just follow the old school uh, script. Right? And I think we, 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 need, we have come to a point where we, we need to have a lot of these more difficult conversations. Yuvan, mm. how does this speak to the idea of a community of care? I think, apart from just community of care, that's where I think my whole concept of the regionalization of Singapore is going to be very critical. Because I think in the past, what, what happened was the mom was able to just do live and learn. That means I bring my child back to school and back, I, I'm mostly at, at home. Whereas the dad was just live and work. But now what we are seeing is live, learn. So you live, then you go and drop your kid, then you go to work, then you come back, and then you come back home. You're making a whole circle. And if one of it is not within your regional parameters and it's off to maybe another part of Singapore, your travelling time essentially increases because each person is taking on more workload. So I think as we move towards a more shared responsibility, we must also understand that uh, the infrastructure needs to be accessible for individuals looking to do that. And again, with technology, it's a double-edged sword. You, you, your mobile phone is always with you. You're always connected at work. So how can I make travel time a lot more efficient for me to be uh, able to execute the new duties of a dad or the duties of a dad of today? So I think that's one. I think second is it, it's important that we, we cannot look at our previous generation as just, just ways of doing things, right? It has really definitely evolved. Even for my fiancé and myself, 
we are very clear on okay how the home should be cleaned, how we should wash the dishes. These are conversations that we are having now already. Because I have a different perspective, she has a different perspective. So it's about how we can then meet the alignment. But those kinds of conversations need to happen. And the community of care comes into play on how do you have these conversations? Because in the past, your parents didn't even have these conversations. It was assumed. Now that this is a variable, we need to turn to friends who are five years older than me, eight years older than me, to understand where they're doing or what, what they're doing, the mistakes that they have made or things that they have learned, and then implement those lessons in my life right now. And that, and as a, as a person who has a recipient of a mentor, the only way I can give it back is to give it back to another person. So that's how I, I see both the infrastructure play and the community play happening. I, let's keep the conversation flowing. I think we've had uh, uh, somebody who's been waiting for a while. Thank you for waiting. Please say your question. Hi, I'm Eugene from Nanyang JC. And, my, and this question is on the differences in how opposite-sex couples and LGBTQ couples are treated. So I think a reason that policies relating to families are not friendly towards the LGBTQ community is to prevent some from taking advantage of such policies. While I do acknowledge that not all LGBTQ couples have malicious intent, and correspondingly, not all opposite-sex couples are genuine in their intentions, there is a concern in that making such policies friendly to the LGBTQ community could worsen the scarcity of such resources, such as housing. With that, what are your views on this concern and how do you think it could be mitigated? Thank you. I think this question is uh, uh, pretty well put together and, and appreciated. So Darius, I think that maybe you'd be the best person because you mentioned also the idea of uh, uh, childbearing among LGBTQ uh, uh, and also, there's the idea of uh, housing and being scarce good. Eugene, maybe don't run away. <laughs> 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 thanks for thanks for staying put. I, I I'm, actually, I'm actually I need some education. I'm actually unaware what are the thoughts around how people would how LGBTQ community may take advantage. So maybe you can enlighten me a little. Uh, I'm not too sure about any instances of this happening in Singapore. Yeah. But from what I've read online which I can't verify, some people may pretend to be of a member of this community to gain benefits such as jobs, as there are some countries that have something like diversity, diversity quotas. So they might take okay. advantage of this. To, yeah. So, that's, so diversity quota, all those things are not really applicable in Singapore as far as I, I'm aware. Um, the only thing I can speculate on how you would think about something like this is that maybe two actual straight men pretend to be gay to get married to buy a BTO, which they otherwise, as a single, couldn't. But then you would make the same argument that you can do that as a heterosexual, right? You can pretend to get married and, and, and actually buy a BTO as well. So, I, so I'm not aware what those things might be. Um, but I think getting to the heart of the question, mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm beating a dead horse. I think the, the, for me personally, the question goes back to parody. Right? We as a country, what are we saying is our priority? Is our priority to be welcoming and inclusive so that we want more people here, more people give birth, including more people adopt children if they were um, uh, kind of a, a, a homosexual couple um, uh, or have biological some, in some other way? Um, so if we are saying that that's what we want to be, Let's not mean our words, right? It's going to come at a cost that some people not agreeing. It's going to come at a cost that perhaps there's some loopholes in some policy. Somebody's going to take advantage of it. It's going to happen. 
every policy has to post, somebody's going to take advantage. It's going to work. It's going to happen. But the question is, what is the priority? If the priority is, that's where we want to be, we go despite it. So that's how I would think about that question. Yeah. Darius, if I may push uh, Eugene's point a little bit more, I think that he made an interesting, very interesting point about scarcity, which is something that you spoke about. But here he's talking about the fact that housing also is a scarce good, right? And in terms of allocation of such, something like housing, you know, is there, is there therefore, you think, that impetus to allocate the scarce good to certain groups? Uh, yes, that's definitely. And, and you know, I, you know I, I, I say this knowing full well that it would not be a popular um, opinion, right? The popular opinion would be, well, let's try to give our scarce resources, particularly housing being the most scarce one, um, to... Uh, to families we think that has the highest likelihood of producing a productive mm. child. Now, putting aside the fact that there are many studies, maybe non-conclusive, I'm not sure, I'm not a researcher, um, that alternative paths, including single parenthood, including LGBTQ parenthood, um, are equally successful. Putting aside that, you may, may agree or may not disagree on that. I think my point still remains that overall as a, as a country, the question is, do we go out and say that we want parenthood. And if so, we cannot mince our words, we cannot be unclear about. But only in this situation, only if you're under 35, only if you're married. You know, it's, if you add too many qualifiers to it, I'm confused. Mm -hmm. You want parenthood, let's go. Mm -hmm. Right, and we have to take some hits along the way, we have to, people will have to share some scarce resource along the way, you wait three months more for your BTO instead of Nine months, you have to wait what, a year instead of nine months, so be it. We go as a country, this is what we want. So this is how I think about that, that question. Yes, scarce, but share it, send the message clear. I think the question also ties really to the top voted question that we have online, which is about, uh, and I, I'm going to read it out and then open it up actually to the two, uh, two other speakers, uh, which is, should our housing public housing system be so closely tied to marriage status and how can we improve the flexibility uh, for unmarried uh, Singaporean youth? So we have heard a little bit about from this, about from Darius. Um, so Shannon, from your perspective as somebody who's been, um, who's waiting for your BTO, right? Um, did you want to... Sorry. Wing? <laughs> um, I really have not much to add to what Darius has already said. I think... Um, the point here is what do we want and how do we agree as a society? What do we want? How, are we using uh, housing or public housing as a kind of a way to, to ensure that it fits our traditional idea of what a family looks like or what, what, what an what a ideal uh, couple looks like, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think anything can stop us if one day we decide, like, maybe that's not what we want. We want to uh, embrace a broader definition of what family looks like. Um, to, to change policies around that and to allow more flexibility, whether it's co-living, whether it's, whether it's you, you can have different kinds of houses or, or, or how we prioritize people or, or who we allow people to, who do we allow to live in a certain flat or, or, or maybe even move to kind of a rental, more rental than a home ownership type of model. We can do anything, right? But I think we first have to decide, like, is this something that we want? And what, what is it that we want? And why is it we want that? Because of equity, because of, of, of fairness, or, or is it because we, we just... Uh, uh, are tied to this idea that you know, family must be in a certain, uh, certain way, right? So I, I mean, this is also tied to, to, to uh, just now what we talked about, but one of the things I always remember is that 
in the past, in, 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 in like 1930s, 40s, right, like adoption is super common. Like if some family has a lot of children and like they cannot look after them, actually they just, get, they just ad adopt each other's uh, family. Yesterday there was, I think today, maybe today, yesterday it came out online, today maybe offline. ST, there was this article about how these uh, uh, two Chinese uh, sisters were adopted by a Malay family and an Indian family. Uh, and, and it's so common, my grandfather also was adopted. So I think that if we are able to be more flexible around how we think about the family, then all these things are, are moots, right? They're they are just downstream things that we deal with after, afterwards. So I think and this, sorry, yeah, this, you want to add on? Or? No, I wanted to. Oh, yeah, sure. So I think this talks about policy. Policy and scarcity goes very well in hand, but I think mindset is somewhere where we can really explore on how we can really redefine housing and families. Take me for example. I took a deliberate step to buy a house with my mom because I'm a single parent only child. Mm -hmm. That means, and I bought a private house, that means I, I'm automatically opting out of the public housing scheme. I cannot expect the policymakers to understand the specific needs of my situation. But what I can then have is a redefined mindset of what the family in the house means, right? So what that also means for couples is, do you really need to BTO and move out as a couple individually? Or can you explore things working with your in-laws? I know that is... The amount of people that have rejected me because they knew I was going to live, they're going to live with my mom is, I, I, I cannot count. But that is a reality on the ground. As policymakers, just land is only so scarce. If you, everybody insists on moving out at an early period of time, your housing needs are really just going to be very crunched. But if you're able to say, look, for a particular period of time, let's stay in together. Then after that, we can explore other kinds of housing. Then I, I think that's another way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. Rather than expecting policymakers to always try to adapt to our wins and fancies. Can we as a society understand that housing and the inter intersections with families actually can be quite varied? It doesn't need to be uniform. It doesn't need to be a cookie cutter and it doesn't need to be systematic. And that we are all comfortable as a society with this happening. Thank you very much, Ruben. I think that we are uh, approaching the uh, end of the Q&A session. Um, and we've really brought up so many different points. And for those who are watching, um, I think that it would be helpful for, for, for each of you to just, give a, a, just spend one minute or less than that uh, talking about what you think are the key thoughts that you have had and that you would like somebody who is in the audience to walk away with. We can start from the back, maybe okay, from sure. uh, so, Ivan. Yeah, so I think we will need to navigate three tensions. Uh, first is a uh, policy tension, which is to understand that the role of family is not just under the gamut of the Ministry of Social and Family Development. It's an overarching uh, policy, it's an overarching belief that not just whole of government, but whole of society needs to take into account. Because it involves housing, it involves CPF, it involves leaves, right? So as a society, as an economy, do we want to say we've reached a particular threshold, I think we need to prioritise uh, family as opposed to just economic interests. Second, I think we will need to have a, a change of principles, a policy, a principle tension, where are we going to focus on form or are we going to focus on substance? Because if we focus on substance, then we are very comfortable with saying that families can take different forms as long as the relationships between each family member is strong. And if that is the case, I think we've got a lot more latitude to work on. And I think the third is on the tension of what I would call mindset, where what is good for a Singaporean family may not be good for the family of Singapore. What I mean by this, and one classic example is, as I mentioned earlier, institutionalised care for elderly. When we look at institutionalised care for children, it's viewed very positively. But if we were to look at the existence of old age homes or senior care centres, somehow or other there's an anxiety that this will then 
um, negate my housing value and housing price. But that will eventually impact us because if you're not able to institutionalize care for the elderly or not even have that uh, availability as for me to consider or for us to consider, then are we really then in the long term really tying, tying ourselves in the bind? So I think the entire conversation on family and youth and family in general would be based on these three tensions that we will need to overcome. Shannon? Your question again was... Oh, just uh, what may be a up. very quick takeaway that you want audience members to remember? I think we need to allow youth to study themselves, uh, which means that uh, I think we need better sharing of data with, with, with young people uh, so that they can take up these concerns and, and study it for themselves and figure out what kinds of solutions they need and what kind of solutions they will, uh, they will, they will fight for. Right? And I, I, I'm gonna, I guess I, I'm going to finish by reading this um, quote that I have from my colleague Yu Yen uh, in her study among parents. Okay? She says, through embeddedness in differentiated and hierarchical systems, parents come to understand the stakes and the responsibilities around education. It is not some deep or innate cultural drive that leads to these outcomes. It is a costly enterprise. To parent in Singapore is to spend significant sums of money and time on children's education. It involves giving up one's own leisure and organizing life around schoolwork and exams. In some cases, and particularly for mothers, it involves giving up on one's own dreams and aspirations. Beyond this, there is what we might think of as uneasy parenting in which there is ambivalence and discomfort about one's own actions and a questioning of whether what is one doing is right or wrong. Parents parent with acute consciousness regarding the risks and pitfalls of being insufficiently attentive or if they fail to get their children to improve and pass tests, but they also parent with a sense that the game they partake in is problematic and in certain ways may be wrong or harmful to their children. So I think the point here is really to get resources to the people who, who need it so that they can not have to fight this moral battle uh, on, on their own. Thank you, Shannon. Darius? Um, sure. Um, I suppose, one, my two cents, to have clear priority, priority articulation is, is having, bucking the trend of birth rate, which may be the first developed country to, to, to do it if we could succeed. Is that a priority? Is that a top three priority? Is it a priority that we would do despite unpopularity, despite non-consensus, despite at the, to have it at the cost of other goals and other policies? If it is the case, number two, then design parenthood as a product that our customers' parents would buy. What are they buying? Um, and to make sure that at every part of the journey is something that's so easy for them to buy starting from the early, before you even think about parenting, freeze your eggs, make it super easy, super simple to do it, no questions asked, um, and, then, and then really solve some of the deeper problems, um, which would include, uh, perhaps at the, at, at the magnitude, moving big, boldly, like Shannon said, right? At the magnitude of perhaps how about nationalizing preschool, which I'm sure has been considered. Not just nationalizing, but to think of it as is if parents complain that it's cost that's stopping them, it's not just absolute cost, but relative cost. So not just nationalizing, but stopping parents from actually going to private preschool. That means that evens the playing ground for everybody. So you don't have to think about it. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. I can do it. 
right? I'm not worried about should I go to private school or not. So nationalizing preschool, full day primary, primary school, many, many things would happen. Sending a clear message to say that everybody's welcome to be a parent, um, single mothers, whatever. So, um, but I think it starts from the top in terms of are we making it a priority at the cost of others? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all three speakers. I've learned so much, and I hope you have enjoyed the session as much as I have. So let's put our hands together to thank them.